standard issue for all women. Oi, oi, welcome to Sunday Chops. Mickey here. Thanks very much for tuning in. I'm going to do the admin first. I'm mixing stuff up. If you like what we do, please do rate and review us on iTunes. It really is very helpful. And five is an absolutely corking number of stars. Thanks very much. If this is your first chops, you have a whole back catalogue of Sunday deliciousness to tuck into. There's a brilliant chat about beetles where M.G. Leonard, the author, came in and told us all about insects and made Jen and Hannah squirm. We also chatted to Rowan Davis, who's head of policy and campaigns at Mumsnet. And she told us about the horrific lack of postnatal care that is happening in the UK at the moment. Hannah, Jen and I have chatted to some absolutely brilliant women in individual interviews, which are well worth having a listen to. And they include Judy Murray, Claire Balding, Kira Donlan, Monica Dolan and our very own Sarah Millican. If you have listened to this week's pod scene, you have probably already been enchanted by the absolutely astonishing Dr. Sabrina Cohen-Hatton. And if you've not listened to it, uh, please do straight after this, because it's an absolute corker, as per. Sabrina is Deputy Assistant Commissioner at the London Fire Brigade. She is an expert psychologist. She's writing a book called Through the Fire. It's already been picked up by Endemol to become a TV series. And she's just an all-round brilliant bird. Hannah and I were a little bit smitten. Don't tell anyone. Anyway, here is an extended version of our chat where we talk about fires, the risks involved for firefighters, the humans behind the badge... And I get told off very gently, but rightly so. Hi, we're here in the unexpectedly noisy Big Chill in King's Cross with Dr. Sabrina Cohen-Hatton, who's a firefighter, a psychologist and an expert on risk-critical decision-making. Hello. Hello. What? Maybe we'll start with, what's risk-critical decision-making? Wow, so there's an interesting story that sits behind this, actually. I'm really interested with how the brain processes information and how you make decisions when you're at a point where you're under an incredible amount of pressure and the potential outcomes have got high stakes. So if you take the world of fire and rescue, for example, which is where most of my research area is focused, our context is really challenging. So when we go to incidents, we know they're high stakes because of the nature, the inherent dangers of the the, the kind of circumstances we're going into. It's dangerous to the people that you're there to rescue, obviously. It's dangerous for the firefighters that are going into these kind of environments to perform the rescues. So there are lives at stake. It is a high-stakes decision. Um, Also, the kind of environments that we go into now, we're under more scrutiny today than ever before as incident commanders. So you know that before you've even finished the incident, someone will have whipped out their iPhone and it will probably be on YouTube before you've got back on the truck and got back to the station. So in many respects, that's really good because, you know, it, it, it enhances your levels of accountability. But in other respects, it adds to the pressure that you're feeling over and above the kind of circumstances that you're dealing with. Also, because the number of fires and incidents that we've gone to has reduced over the past 10 years because we've done so much work around our prevention activity, arguably that means we're getting less experience now, less practice at those kind of risk-critical skills that you'd need to operate in that kind of environment. I did some work looking at command skills, essentially, a piece of national work that fed into our national policy on, on effectively how we command incidents. And there are some like really, really important skills that you don't necessarily think about when you imagine a firefighter or an incident commander. 
I should say, sorry, the incident commander would be the one that's in charge of the whole incident. So they'd be the ones that would be coordinating, making the decisions and making sure that the right people are in the right place at the right time to go and save that life. So that person's carrying a lot of responsibility and a a lot of accountability for the way the whole incident progresses. If you imagine the kind of skills that you'd need for that, you're talking about decision-making, it's a skill, it's a cognitive skill. Situational awareness, the way that you integrate all those pieces of information and you process them into that mental picture so you understand what's going on around you. Communication, leadership, your resilience to pressure, they're all skills, they're non-technical skills, but they're skills nonetheless. Because we're not going to as many incidents, we've got to work harder to make sure that those skills are still as, as flexible, if you like, as we need them. So the analogy that I always take it to is if you imagine swimming. Swimming's a skill, right? If you trained every day in an Olympic pool and you could swim twice the distance of the channel, but then you picked yourself up and you plopped yourself in the channel and you found you couldn't even do a quarter of it, it's the same skill, but because the environment is different, the pressures are different which is why it's so important to get this right. So my research area has looked at the way that we make decisions under those kind of very specific circumstances and under those pressures with a view to trying to make firefighters safer. I mean, I suppose in the way that any of us could be mugged in the street and then be absolutely confident in our own selves, we would not chase that person who mugged us, but yet we might still, in the heat of the moment, Mm. make that decision. Yeah. Is that the same sort of primary it, reaction that you, you, you're kind of trying to combat? Do you know what? You basically nailed it. Okay, <laughs> we're never going to hear the end of this. <laughs> yeah. Well done, Hannah. Previously, when we were looking at the way we made decisions, our kind of national policy was focused on those analytical decisions. So it's really well thought out in these circumstances. These are the pros, these are the cons. I'm going to weigh them up and, and, and make a decision on the basis of that. My research went into fire and rescue services looking at the way people were actually making decisions when they were in those kind of circumstances. And what we found is 80% of the decisions that they made were intuitive. It was those gut decisions based on their previous experiences, based on their brain's biases and shortcuts that they've made that helps them to do things quicker in those kind of high-pressured environments. And it's got loads of benefits. It means that you make decisions quickly. It means that you don't have to synthesise all the information around you and consider it in the same kind of deliberated way. It's a shortcut. It's a bias. And it's really helpful. But there are some downsides to that as well. There are some decision traps that you can fall into when you're using those kind of processes. So, for example, if you were making a decision based on one piece of information that came in, but you weren't putting that piece of information into your overall picture, it might be absolutely the right thing to do for that piece of the jigsaw, but once you put it in the the greater picture, then you might have unintended consequences. So my work looked at how we do make decisions, which was really helpful and enlightening, but then we worked on some techniques to improve the way that we make decisions and support those people who are working in incredibly difficult circumstances to make um, more effective, better decisions when they're, they're there. What we found, actually, and I've got a personal story that that feeds into this, but 80% of accidents across all injuries happen as a result of human error. That's incredible, and that's a trend that's reflected in terms of firefighter injuries as well. We know that it's a dangerous environment. Of course we do, and we do everything that we can to minimise that. But 
Over 2,500 firefighters are injured every year. 130 firefighters last year suffered major injuries during the course of their duty. In the UK? In the UK. So when you think about that, 2,500, that's that's a huge amount. That's something like 32 double-decker buses you could fill just with people that have become injured. And when you think that one of the primary causes isn't a failure of a piece of equipment, it's not a flawed policy or a flawed procedure, it's the way that someone has interpreted some information, a decision that's been made in the wrong place at the wrong time, leading to those kind of outcomes. So it's really important to nail the best way we can improve safety is to reduce human error and that's what this whole kind of this that's what all of the work was intended to do wow and all of this work has led to a book am i right it has yeah it's all very exciting it's called through the fire and one of the things that i really wanted to try to do was to show people the human side of firefighting everyone's got a really strong kind of stereotype an image in their head of, of what, what a firefighter might look like. Exactly like you, no. No, no. no. Exactly. Well, I would say post-September the 11th, very much as somebody who is almost beyond human in their levels of endurance and bravery. and Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's the superhuman kind of image. And, and we're so lucky in this country. We dial 999 and we get a response. You know, not everywhere in the world is as lucky as we are from that respect. And I think that sometimes we forget what sits behind that response, the human response behind that. And you don't have to be, you know, a kind of stereotypical calendar-looking hunky person to become a, a firefighter. said they're not all six-foot-two hairy-ass men anymore. <laughs> and she's quite right. She's quite right. And neither do you need to be, because you know what? It's about the mix of skills. Yeah. And, you know, no one would want a toolbox full of 10 mil spanners. That'd be pretty useless. So, you know, <laughs> I think I've gone out with it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it is about that mix. And Regardless of what we look like, the one thing that all firefighters have got in common is that drive to protect people. You know, I'm really fortunate with the work that I've been able to do. I've been able to help to protect the people that protect you so that essentially they have more chance of coming out and, and saving a life. And that is, has been such a huge privilege. Um, so with the book, I wanted to try and get across the human side of it and also the human cost of it as well and what it means to firefighters when we're operating in those kind of risk-critical environments. So I've taken the research that we've done and the pieces that we've learned about how we make decisions. I've highlighted, um, I've kind of used my own personal experiences as an operational incident commander um, to be able to kind of demonstrate those things in practice and they're just as applicable to everyday life as well the way that we make decisions and some of the techniques that we've developed to help firefighters are just as applicable if you're making a decision in a boardroom or you know you're trying to satisfy your grumpiest relative with your you know your decisions on where you go on holiday you know it, it they're really useful tools it's not just a book coming, is there? There's also End of Moloch picks it up for a TV series. Yes, they have. They have. Sorry, I don't know why my voice goes really high-pitched <laughs> no, with excitement whenever I talk really about that. <clears throat> yes, no, it's wonderful. It's incredibly exciting. So a production company called Kudos have uh, acquired the rights to the book. 
and they have done some incredible stuff before. Um, I don't know if you saw uh, Spooks and Grandchester and Broadchurch, but that's all yeah. their work. And um, Gunpowder that was on on Bonfire Night, which really inappropriately yes. is my favourite holiday of the year. Yeah. Just I love Bonfire Night. I'm so excited to see what they produce at the end of it. It's just wonderful. But one of the most exciting things for me is to be able to kind of challenge those stereotypes that people have about what you need to be a good firefighter. Well, well let's challenge one of them now and say that things appear to be changing for women in the fire service. I mean, you in your position, Danny Cotton, who we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, they're, they're also the... Sorry? The female commissioner of the Fire Brigade. She is yeah, in our 150-year <laughs> um, history. Yeah, and also the Fire Brigade Union has some women in it. Yes, yes, yes. No, lots. Is it becoming a more female-friendly working environment, or is there still a long way to go? Do you know what? I joined the fire service when I was 18 years old, 17 years ago, which obviously means I'm 21 today. Um, <laughs> And it's so incredibly different today to the position that we were in 17 years ago. And when I joined, I joined in South Wales Fire and Rescue Service and I was the seventh woman to join out of 1,700 male operational firefighters. So, you know, we were absolutely in the minority and I've had some really challenging experiences, but I think, you know, that's the equivalent to everyone's workplace. But I've also had some of the most amazing experiences as well. The watch that I used to work on in Cardiff, I can honestly say it was like having 16 big brothers that you would go to work with every day. They were just wonderful. So I think the demographics are certainly changing. You know, we've seen, um, we have seen a small increase in the number of women that are joining the fire and rescue services nationally. I think nationally, oh my gosh, I'm going to say the wrong one now, but I, I'm, we're around five or six percent nationally. Still not enough. It's still not enough. And it's, I don't say that because I think that we need a 50-50 split at all. I don't say that for that reason at all. I think that we need to attract the best of the best to be firefighters. You know, it's such an incredible job. It's so worthwhile. And at the moment, we're only attracting the best of the best of the people who are attracted to the traditional stereotype. You know, I think some of our best firefighters have probably never even considered it as a job yet. And that, for me, is the the challenge. So, you know, any way that we can contribute to changing that stereotype. And, you know, I think Danny's done an incredible job, absolutely incredible job of of challenging some of those stereotypes and role modelling, you know, a, a different image. I think it's been wonderful. So still lots more to do, but I think that we're on a journey and we will get there. And, you know, I can't wait to see what it's going to be like in another 17 years' time. You touched on there about about having been in some horrific situations. What does the effects of being in a major event like September the 11th, Grenfell Tower, which obviously we, we can't talk about in detail, because of the ongoing inquiry or um, King's Cross we're just up the road from King's Cross which was uh, my uncle was at the King's Cross fire really? as a fireman yeah in 1985 I can't say it's actually something I did ask him about it but I was young when I asked him about it I think I asked it about him about it from a factual point of view yeah. rather than from a feelings point of view as in a, what did that do to you what yeah. do you, do you now it seems like the sort of thing you don't want to bring up after a long time. No. But what, what sort of effects, or do we do we know how that affects people? Yeah, well, it's it's really interesting because it's not just firefighters, it's not just emergency responders. 
there has been some research done into how we respond to traumatic events and there, the, the research shows that one in every two of us will be exposed to some kind of traumatic event within our, lives, our lifetime, so it's a very relevant point. Out of those people, around 10% will go on to develop something more serious like post-traumatic tra- stress disorder. Actually, MIND uh, did some fantastic research as part of their um, uh, Blue Light Mental Health campaign, and they looked at how people in emergency services respond and they actually found that we suffer disproportionately from the effects of trauma because we're exposed to it so regularly. They also found it was more difficult for people from blue light services to talk about it or admit that they have a, you know, that they need some help. So certainly breaking down that stigma around mental health has been an ongoing challenge and and like I said I think mine are doing some fantastic work with it. Fire and Rescue Services up and down the country have really grabbed hold of it and are starting to do some fantastic work with it as well. So bit by bit, we're breaking down the stigma associated with it. But, yeah, we do get exposed to traumatic situations and it, it does play on our mind. And this is something that I touch on in my book, actually. I've had experiences myself where, you know, for every kind of hundred scenes you go to when you can be exposed to some really difficult scenes, there'll always be that one that sticks with you that you find difficult. And sometimes it's because there's something around it that's closer to home. And... I'll give you an example. One of the, the, the incidents that I had many, many years ago was it was actually one of the drivers for the research. Um, me and my husband, who's now my husband, he wasn't at the time, we were both firefighters at the same time and we were on neighbouring stations. So we didn't work together directly on the same crew, but, you know, we kind of been in and around the same area. There was an incident one day where... A firefighter had been very badly burned, and I knew at this incident there was only one fire engine, and my husband was on it, and I was part of the crew that was responding to that. And when the the when we had the ticket through, and the guys kind of looked at me, and and I walked in, and they, there was just like this look of horror on their face. And I was like, "What's the matter?" And I was kind of like pulling on my boots and pulling the straps up over my shoulders. And they told me what it was, and it was like the whole room was spinning, um, and. I could hear their voices, but I couldn't make out the words, what they were saying. And that journey was the longest four minutes and 37 seconds of my entire life, let alone my career. It was hideous. And when we got there and I jumped off the truck, there was kind of this huddle of of firefighters. And all I could see was this pair of legs with kind of dirty patches on the knees sticking out from the huddle. And I had no idea whether it was Mike or not. And I can honestly say, I think I was about to throw up when Mike stood up from the huddle and I could see that, He was all right. And I can remember just feeling this overwhelming sense of relief that it wasn't him. And I was running towards the the crowd and I had like a a medic kit in my one hand and an oxygen cylinder in my other. And I couldn't feel my legs. I knew they were moving, but I couldn't feel them at all. You know, I was so overcome with this, this, this sense of relief that it wasn't him. And anyway, I got to the huddle and... I did what a firefighter is supposed to do. I joined my crew and we dealt with the scene. But for a long time after that, I felt this incredible sense of guilt because for the entire journey, I'd crossed my fingers that it wasn't Mike. And by crossing my fingers that it wasn't him, I'd almost felt like I'd wished it on somebody else who we'd worked with for a long time. And he wasn't just a colleague, he was a friend. And I, and I, I found that really difficult to deal with. But, you know, afterwards, I'd be kind of... I, 
I didn't admit how I felt for a very long time. In fact, it was probably years later before I actually was comfortable enough to speak about it. And part of me was afraid that people would think that I was, you know, weak or couldn't cope. Another part of me thought that, you know, cynical people might think that my weakness was predisposed because I was a woman, so I doubly didn't want to raise it. I'd spent all my career trying not to tick the box that says, said I was different, and, you know, you don't want to provide another reason for people to see a difference. So, you know, it was really hard, but the only way that I could deal with it was by doing something good with it. And that was the whole reason why I started to look at psychology. And I actually, I left school at 16, left home at 15. So by the time I started looking at kind of firefighter safety and how we could make a difference, I didn't have the qualifications to make any kind of a meaningful difference at first. So that's when I did a psychology degree, distance learning with the OU. And then I found actually this is really, really my passion and I could do something useful with this. And then I went on and did a, a PhD at Cardiff while I was still serving and wow. did something useful with it what and the made a fuck difference have I been with doing it. With my time. <laughs> <laughs> really? not chest of drawers, mate. <laughs> That's what I was doing. So when you meet people, I guess the sort of psychologist bit kicks in. But as a firefighter, with your experience in psychology, do you walk into rooms, into bars, into restaurants, or into people's houses, or see their cars, and sort of analyse the risks? Um, I think it's hard not to once you've been doing it for such a long time. So, yeah, what it's funny because my friends just assume I psychoanalyse them all the time, and and people that don't know me confuse psychologist with psychic and think I can read their minds. And categorically, I can't. I wish I could. What have I got in my left? I can't. (laughs) Uh, Pack of fags. (laughs) You know, you've kind of got that side of things. And I'm always kind of going in, and, and it sounds really geeky and really nerdy, but I'm like, all right, fire exit's over there then, yeah. <laughs> so you kind of just check your escape route before you come in. We were saying um, this earlier, my, my uncle that I just mentioned, who's a fireman, because I've got, I mean, I'm sure... Firefighter, you've got to call him a firefighter. Sorry. Sorry. Right. Was, uh, that is just, a, my granddad used to say, my son's a fireman, you know. <laughs> my uncle, who's a firefighter, who I just mentioned, I'm, I'm short, I have incredibly short legs on top of that, and I have to sit really, really close to the steering wheel in my car so I can reach the pedals. And every time he sees me, he says, that that just makes me feel sick when I see you <laughs> because I think about cutting you out of there yeah. because that is not a good position yeah. for a firefighter to see someone in. You want someone with long legs who's way back, who sits with their chair way back. Well, that's what he says. Well, I'm with you. I've got, I'm quite little. Yeah. So I'm kind of always quite close up to, yeah. the, to the steering wheel. But my excuse is that the safety of cars has improved well, exactly. so much they and also if I couldn't the... reach the brake I would no, be way that's more true. <laughs> but it's true and I've got a I've got an eight year old girl and it's always the kind of you know you see them doing something you're like that's really dangerous if you had an accident there because she always puts her feet up on the dashboard you can't do that if you had an accident yeah. the airbag would go and it, you'd end up hurting your face because your legs would hit your face and then you find YouTube videos of crash test dummies just to make sure that they're completely informed about the risks um, so I can never go outside she she's pre- no her. she's pretty good actually she's um, I think she's going to be an adrenaline junkie when she grows up so she's going to need that curb um, but do you know what there's a really interesting point to that um, and it's a slight digression but it's a difference that between 
little girls and little boys and how um, how people respond to them and the messages that get ingrained as a result. So there was a lovely study done a few years ago, and ironically it was with a, a fire pole, um, and a group of psychologists were observing little girls and little boys in a playground playing on this, you know, you know the fire poles, the, yeah. the toy fire pole. They're brilliant. Um, not that I still, you know play on them at the playground now when she's on the swings. Show everyone how it's actually done. Oh, I've just imagined a great sketch. We're in a children's park and there's just loads of fire going down. Move over. My turn. Um, I do trapeze at a circus and there's a move that you do call the fireman's pole where you kind of use the rope as a fireman's pole. And it's actually really easy but it looks super impressive. But you end up in what is called either the iron fanny or a crotch balance. Which is not pleasant at all. Well, you've got to you've got to rebrand it now. It can't be a fireman's pole anymore. It's got to be a firefighter's pole, or a, or a fire pole. A fire pole. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because it doesn't have to belong to him. It can belong to anyone. Good. Um, but this this study was great, and these psychologists went and looked at the parents and how they were responding to little girls versus little boys. And it was it was mums and dads, so they had a good mix. And what they found is when the little boy wanted to go and play on the on the pole, they'd be encouraged, and if they showed any kind of trepidation, they'd kind of push them to go and play on their own and just you know tell them what to do to do it safely. Whereas if the little girl wanted to go and play on the pole, then they were instantly put off from it, and they're like, no, 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 you can't. It's too dangerous. No, 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 wait for me, let me come and help you. And the message that gets ingrained then from a really young age is little boys can take a risk and be brave. Little girls are too delicate, it's too dangerous, they need help, you can't do it without help. And it's a crude measure, but when you transpose that then to the working world, generally, there was um, some work done around uh, men and women and what they would, um, their, their job application preferences. And what the, the researchers found is that men on average will apply for a job if they meet like 60% of the job criteria, whereas women won't apply until they've hit 100% of yeah. the job criteria. And then you put those two together and you think, well, actually, it's no surprise when you look at the, the, the societal gender stereotypes that people have to push against, it's no wonder that it becomes so challenging and I'll never forget I had a a lovely colleague um, a few years ago and we were both going for our station managers at the same time which is kind of like your first step up from a station so like a watch watch manager or a watch commander will be in charge of the truck at the station the station manager or the station commander will be in charge at the station so we were both watch commanders and we were going for station commander at the same time and we both done little bits of kind of temporary here and there so both had some experience and the board was advertised and there were a couple of positions and we were having a coffee one day and he said are you going to go for it and I said well I've looked at it but do you know what I don't think I've got experience in the right place so I don't think I'm going to bother and he just sat back he literally snorted on his coffee and thought he was going to come out of his nose I don't know well I know I haven't got the right experience but I'm still going to do it and he went for it and he got the job I just thought to myself then, why didn't I be a little bit braver? Why didn't I just try? I don't know, it's hard because I think that sometimes you're scared of failure and sometimes you're scared of, you know, because you stick out, if you fail, people will know about it. But I thought to myself then, no, if I just had been a bit braver, then that could have been me. I chucked a bit through him, he was a smashing fella, but the point was, 
I didn't go for it and I could have. So, you know, you can see it in practice as well. And I'm sure that, you know, most women have got stories that are similar. I interviewed Jess Phillips, the MP, who's a friend of the show, and she was saying when she worked in the women's refuges, for various reasons, obvious reasons, a lot of the jobs the applicants could only be women. And they still got men applying for it anyway, because uh-huh. they were like, well, I meet 60% of the criteria. <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> uh, I get a feeling it's going to get really loud in a second. So, uh, do we make this your last question? The last thing was we had some. Do you, if you had any tips for people, oh, how, how's the best to word this? Tips for people like me who, when the smoke alarm starts beeping and can't turn it off, just takes the batteries out. Do you want to shout at people? Oh, please don't do that. Please, please, please. I beg you, because there's nothing more heartbreaking than going into a house after you've seen, you know, the kind of devastating loss that happens and everything in your life, your memories, your every worldly possession has been burnt to the ground or even worse, someone you love has lost their life in that fire and then you look up and you look at the smoke alarm and you think, why didn't that go off? You take it down and you see that it would have gone off if someone had only left the battery in and that person went to sleep and and unfortunately never woke up again because... They didn't have the early warning of the smoke alarm. It's so important. So, so I guess my question is, what are the very silly mistakes that people are still making? Oh, I actually know the answer to one of these. This comes from my local newspaper years. Get your chimney swept. Yes. Loads of people don't. And it would be yeah. amazing how many times we put a nib in and that I would say, uh, I'm going to go home immediately and sweep my chimney. That's the third one we've had this week, chimney yeah. fires. Yeah. The one is the smoke alarm. Honestly, it's so fundamental. If you don't have one, please get one. They're not expensive. And if you call your local fire service, we've got a referral scheme and, you know, we can put them up on your behalf. Um, So please, please, please do that. Think about your escape plan if you did have a fire. How would you get out? Where would you be? Think about, you know, those little things. Do you have a key in your door that will allow you to get out? You know, those really, really simple things. The other one is smoking. You know, she's looking directly at Hannah. Directly at Hannah. <laughs> I have to say, I was literally smoking the first time. The surprise saw me. <laughs> it's okay. I don't judge. I don't judge. Just put no, them out. Judge. Put them out safely. Yes. Put them out safely. Because you know, we still have instances where people won't dispose of their cigarettes safely, or they'll fall asleep with them, and it will, you know, set a light to to the room or to the bin if they've not put I them out properly. Those horrific efforts yeah. where they're like the chair and start smoking. I suppose a lot of what you see now is road accidents as well yeah so I suppose any tip that's like just drive safely I suppose yes yes and please don't drink and drive and it's interesting because so many people culturally the next day will get into a car and and not think about how much they've drunk the night before it's so important honestly from some of the scenes that I've been exposed to this again is my nerdiness coming out but if I've had a drink the night before and we all like a drink I won't get in the car the next day at all I'll blanket not use the car full day off for the full day off because actually when you think about the outcomes that can happen it's just not worth the risk and even if it's not your life which is bad enough to be honest you know you should be thinking about that it's the innocent person that's driving along minding their own business or the new mum with the the baby in the back of the car and they get hit by someone because your reaction times are slowed and it's absolutely devastating our daily business is life-changing devastating events for the people that we you know we turn up to assist so i can't emphasize it enough don't be a dick people <laughs> <laughs> sabrina when it's through the fire out 
So it's going to be published in spring 2019, so next spring, which is really scary when you think about the timelines, actually. I'm scared Are you done writing it? Very nearly, very okay. nearly. So um, I've got one more chapter left to do. And then we're going like to still that. make it in, Mick. <laughs> <laughs> what not to do? <laughs> no, do you know what? I've really enjoyed it. I like writing anyway, and I've, I'm still very active with my research. I'm, a, I'm an honorary research fellow at Cardiff University, so I've got a couple of PhD students that I've got on the go on top of my, oh my um, God, operational role. So <laughs> You've got a child. <laughs> and a husband, which is a bit like one and a half children, isn't it? Um, no, so I'm, I'm used to spending a lot of time writing and, and kind of creatively carving out time where traditionally there isn't any, like, you know, middle of the night and stuff like that. But not while driving, guys. <laughs> but not while driving, absolutely not while driving. So I've quite enjoyed the whole process and it's something that I feel so passionately about. I absolutely love my job, absolutely love my career and I wouldn't change it for the world. And the opportunity to share with people just how special that job is and to help them to think about the people that are effectively the ones that they see as, as just those superhero badges, but think about the people that sit behind it, you know, and think about the bits that make us human and what that means for us when we're making those decisions, and to think about the limitations of being human, and, you know, just to think about what happens when being human gets a bit too much and, and how difficult it can be when you're exposed to those traumatic scenes. Your passion really shines through. It's, it's really lovely. And just before we actually get to Disco 2008, <laughs> <laughs> you're probably going to have to call it quits. Thank you so much for joining us, Sabrina. It's, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you.